0: It's time to sit down and relax for the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A with your host, Doug. Hey there. So if you're enjoying what we're doing or if this is your first time, welcome. But if you are enjoying it, please rate and review us wherever you're listening. Write something really, really nice. Thanks in advance. So last week we reviewed Next Friday, and next week we're discussing the 2003 follow-up to a Swayze classic, Roadhouse 2. I didn't even know there was a Roadhouse 2. Jamie didn't know there was a Roadhouse 2, and I'm sure everyone listening is like, there's a Roadhouse 2? But all I'm going to say is, I'm glad there is. That's it. That's all I'm saying. So that means this week we had to interview someone from the film, and we got someone that has been in the industry for around 23 years prior to Roadhouse 2, And that man is martial artist, actor, fight coordinator, bodyguard, Richard Norton. He grew up in, as he would say, the bushes outside Melbourne, Australia. And right now, he's currently working on Suicide Squad 2 and fight coordinating. He has some great stories about that. But how he got to the United States is quite an interesting story. And, well, you're going to have to listen to find out. Enjoy. Hi, Richard. Yes, hi. Is that Doug? Yeah, this is Doug. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Great. Thanks so much for taking the time.
1: It's my pleasure. I was just trying to figure it all out.
0: <laughs> oh, you got it. <laughs> you're better than some people, so don't worry about that. So you're in Atlanta for a while shooting something? Yeah, I'm going to be here
1: until the end of uh, December.
0: Oh, wow. At okay. this
1: stage, working on Suicide Squad, James Gunn' new movie. Oh, sweet. Doing, uh, yeah, doing the fight coordinating. Um, and uh, we're in pre-production still at the moment. Don't start shooting till uh, the end of next month. Um, but so far, it's all going well.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah. So what is that process like, being, like doing the fight coordinating? How, did, how does that all work? It works by, are you recording
1: all of this, by the way? Are we
0: tracking yes. now? Yes, yep, yeah. we are tracking.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, you know how it works? Well, for me, you know, first of all, I get hired by... Usually, you know, I've worked for a dear friend of mine, Guy Norris, for probably the last 25 years.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And Guy is the second unit director and supervising stunt coordinator. Um, so he brings me on as part of his team. And uh, look, as you know, I used to do a lot of acting in movies in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, the older you get, the less roles are us, So I end up sort of behind the camera now. Doing a fight coordinating, which is which is great, and uh, so guy brings me on, and the process then really involves getting the script, looking at the characters, the story, looking at the action beats, and then trying to decide what those action scenes uh, and beats are going to look like, and offering them up to the director for his input and notes, and we just mould everything according, or well, very much according to um, story and character, or you know that's that's the most important part is the job that I have to do is not just do an action scene that looks all flashy and nice. It's got to relate to the character, the character's abilities as determined by the script and history, and and not just over the top. In other words, it's got to become part of the drama, not just an action scene for the sake of it. And that's that's the process, which, which the hardest part for me is the pre-production process because that's where you've got a big... You've only got some words on a page, not really much idea. And then you've got to start offering up, as I say, your, your interpretation maybe of an action scene along with whatever uh, notes that the director may give you. And in my case, I offer it up and Guy then has a look at it and he makes his notes and tweets. And then we try and facilitate ultimately what the director wants as it's, it's his vision.
0: Yeah, and you know what? You said it best. So on, on a script, an actor has to read a line, of, and they could change it based on the tone of the scene. But usually in a script, it will just say maybe like fight ensues. So that's a lot that you and other people are working together to be able to figure out like how should this come about. So
1: Oh, 100%. And <clears throat> some scripts will even write out an elaborate description of an action scene. Oh, okay. But so often that is for maybe the production company, the film studio. In other words, you've got to write it initially to somebody that maybe doesn't have an incredible amount of knowledge or imagination as to what this could look like. So to get them excited and on board, sometimes they'll write a bit, write out a detailed description of a fight, but it's really for the reader. It's not for us in, in production. Um, so we can take what's written you know, in quite detail and radically change it and offer it up. And that's why I use the word offer it up because, you know, it doesn't matter what I think it is, you know, ultimately it's got to be what the director feels with his vision of the characters and story. But we've got quite a bit of leeway that way in, in the, in the beginning, as I said, and then it gets narrowed down, of course, because there's a certain amount of screen time that each action scene would have. It's not, Like you can just do a 10 minute fight and expect it's all going to end up on camera. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's 30 seconds, sometimes it's a minute or whatever. And so it's a very collaborative process, though. You know, we've got a great little um, stunt team here and you'll get some local stunties and the stunt doubles that will come in for the actors that maybe learn the fight and then help train the actor. Well, you know, I love just getting their ideas. What do you think? Do you have any ideas on a really cool move or whatever that could be applicable in this particular circumstance? And so, you know, there's no such thing as, say, me just coming up with every move. And and in fact, if I tried to do that, I think that would be destructive because that becomes a very narrow vision. And I often say to the people I work with, the stunt doubles or whatever, look, I'm the fight coordinator, but... If you've got ideas, guess what? None of the credits change. I still get the same credit at the end of the movie as do you. And if we all get come together with the best possible fight scene, then we all win. And the movie wins. You know. So it's, it's about sort of putting your ego aside, of course, and, as I said, taking any and all suggestions on board. Of course, ultimately it comes down to initially me saying, no, out of all of that, I think this is what it should be. And then, again, I might be vetoed by a guy. I say, no, I see it more like this, this, and this, in which case you, you know, salute and say, I oh, captain, and you do that. And then the director may come in, as I said, and then he'll have a slightly different idea. And as I said, it's collaborative. And, but again, one captain of the ship, and in this case, it's the uh, main unit director.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, I haven't talked to anybody that's done any stunts or behind the scenes, so thanks for answering that. So where where does your story begin? Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, uh, Melbourne's, you know, capital city. We're right down, of, uh, a state called Victoria, we're right down south of Australia, the bottom end. And, um, you know, a little suburb called Croydon is where I, I moved there when I was one year old. So I grew up, it was very much called the bush back then because there wasn't a lot, not a lot of housing and everything, a lot of orchards and things like that. Um, but that's where it all started for me, went to Croydon State School and high school, and uh, before eventually, you know, moving out of home and out of, um, out of Melbourne. But I, you know, I still, it's, you know, it's such a wonderful place to live. Um, my career, of course, took me over to the States in 79, to California, Los Angeles, and that's pretty much where I've been based uh, ever since 1979, so I'm Probably more Californian than most
0: yeah, Californians. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so when did you start with martial arts? How old were you? I was eleven years old. I started with judo. There was a
1: a friend of mine at school that was um, doing some judo. Uh, in fact, it was you know he moved into a house opposite where I lived in Croydon. Morris Yeomans, his name is, and he was. Uh, disappearing twice and you know two nights a week and because we used to go and play pool and do a few things like that and i was like oh where are you going as i said this is when he first moved out he said oh i'm going to judo classes and i was like oh my god i want to come along you know so i used to go his dad would drive us there and i started judo but back then i was very very little quite skinny you know as an 11 year old and um whatever people believed judo still does demand a certain amount of strength and power until you get that technically good that it's not required but i felt like a bit of cannon fighter for the older teenage kids you know and another teenage kid we had at school who was learning karate out of a book out of masayama's book uh which is quite a famous book way back and he would come to school and sort of do what we would term party tricks like he it sort of punched the end of a pin and bend it or try and break a board or et cetera, et cetera. And again, he was learning it out of a book. Anyway, he suddenly said, oh, there's a karate school opening up three miles from where we lived. And this gentleman named Tino Severano, who was a Hawaiian Filipino who had moved to uh, Melbourne. He was and only just recently opened up a school. He, he was doing a demonstration and we went along, and I just fell in love with it. You know, with what I saw, it was more standoff, involved more agility and speed than, say, judo, at least, you know, in the way I saw it yeah. as a skinny little kid. And I said, oh my goodness, this is what I want to do. So I immediately joined up, and that's what started my martial arts career. And uh, I couldn't have had a better start to the career with Tino because. I often say to people, when you start training, you don't know whether your instructor's good or bad because you don't know anything. And it's only many years later, often in hindsight, that you find out you either waste a lot of money and time or both, or you were blessed to have a really good start. And that's what I felt. I couldn't have had a better start to my journey under Um So I, I was with him in, in 1970 and... Gentleman who was ten years older than myself, Bob Jones, who ran security in a lot of clubs in Melbourne, and I'm dating myself, but they were discotheques back then. <laughs> <laughs> he um, he ran a lot of security, had a huge reputation as a kind of a street fighter, as it were, but more in a security sense, and wonderful martial artist. Anyway, he wanted to basically start up his own style. And he wanted me to come with him. So I became one of the founders of Zendo Kai. Uh, so it's a very elect- eclectic system, meaning that we tend not to just stay within the traditions of one style. We looked at the effectiveness of boxing, of wrestling, as well as other martial arts styles, and brought them into Zendo Kai to make it not just spiritual, and traditional, everything else, but actually have a certain amount of effectiveness to the stuff we taught. So that was in 1997. We ended up having over 500 schools throughout Australia at one oh, stage, wow. so but to be very big, And um, but our base was still Goju, Goju Gojukai. Uh, Go means, um, hard, Ju means soft. It was a hard, soft system that was uh, originated in Okinawa and had a Japanese sort of branch. We are under this sort of, under this Gogen Yamaguchi gentleman who heard it up, the Japanese style of Goju Kai, but... Anyway, that was our basis, but we were very eclectic, very much like a lot of the American systems that sort of took taekwondo and started to realize kicking alone wasn't going to solve the problem in in an all-out sort of brawl, so they would, you know, a lot of the Taekwondo masters would start adding some boxing and everything else into their system. In other words, a lot of hands, Yeah. only because Taekwondo relies on kicking. So our system was very much like that.
0: So in 1979, was that, what brought you no. to the States? Was it being a bodyguard? Because I was reading you a bodyguard for some big people.
1: Yeah, well, I, that started in 1973. Bob and I were running the schools in Zendokai in Australia, and there was a local entrepreneur, Paul Danke, who brought a lot of the big acts out to Australia, touring bands and everything. He gave us a call, you know, gave Bob a call and said, oh, the Rolling Stones are coming out. He's bringing the Stones out. Would we be interested in being their personal bodyguards? Which, of course, we said yes. So that was my initial foray into Touring with bands and and the idea of being a personal bodyguard and as you can imagine what an introduction right oh, <laughs> with a band like the Rolling Stones yeah
0: and definitely a bunch of characters too not just their music but them individually any what kind of experience is that like
1: oh uh, well it, it's amazing first of all you know you you, you realize that it's an incredibly important job. You know because when you're on a tour with something some bands like the stones yes there's a lot of partying and carrying on and everything but ultimately your your job is to make sure that nothing you know even though we would look at it as a million one chance and nothing sort of bad happens in the physical sense and so you have to be very much on your game hence you know using people like us that don't drink don't smoke and you know, have a band that could basically get shit-faced and know that somebody's still around them with a very straight head and do what they're doing and Another one of the attractivenesses of using us was that we never looked like bodyguards. you know I just Bob and I could look like a member of the band, which they preferred rather than having a huge guy with sort of the heavy overtones that go with that and i'm I'm not saying that's wrong; it's just a certain want of those bands because they didn't want it to appear big and heavy. So we would look like a member of the band, but everywhere they would go, whether they go to a restaurant or a party, and of course at the concerts, we're there, we're like the last line of defense, we're by their side, adjoining rooms, you know, checking all backstage passes, going out in the crowd area before the concert starts helping sort of the local security, putting them where we believe they should be based on what the band we were with sort of felt, meaning some bands are happy with people come all festival seating style, come up to the edge of the stage. And some feel a lot better with keeping the punters in their seats. So we would arrange a local security and and you, you would sort of often scan the crowd, look where you thought there could be a bit of a problem, whether it's people who had too much alcohol or whatever, and you might get a couple of the local guys and say, I just want you to stand here and just keep an eye on them. And basically, we'd be on the side of the stage. So if somebody was to get through whatever security it was and get on the stage, and in this case, my job was to get them off and to get them <laughs> off in, a, in the least physical way because, again, the worst look for a band is someone like me jumping up and something, somebody, because they're on stage <laughs> when often all I want to do is just sort of touch the artist. And of course, you know, we have to also entertain the idea that maybe it's somebody getting up there that wants to do them harm. Hence you have to sort of get them off stage. And so it's that, and you know, the hard part of that job is if you go say to a bar, you I know, mean, I work with David Bowie for maybe eight years and you might go to a bar. Well, at a concert, you have all the local security. So you've got like a little force there, but, when it comes to going out to a club, it was usually just me. Oh. Um, and, you know, you go to a club in wherever USA and all the little chickies would, you know, get in awe of someone like David or whoever and local guys wouldn't necessarily like that. And so there's always the, the chance of something turning out a bit ugly. And so your job is to try and assess that. And, and really, it's not about trying to deal with violence. It's about how do you prevent it? You know, the job is to be very preemptive with anticipating where there could be a problem and thereby sort of separating the artist before something kicked off. Because, again, you're one out. It's not a good situation uh, to be in like that. But that's sort of the job. So it's more that you're the deterrent than anything else. You know, you're there, you're alongside, and if somebody approaches and you step between them, then that's obviously an indication to the person approaching, the, oh, okay, uh, he's got security or whatever, and I've either got to behave, or if they don't, then I'm the one that has to dissuade them in whatever case, you know, hopefully verbally, and if necessary, it might, you know, be a bit physical, but that's that's what it involved. Part of, you know, just to capture that, I, you know, I started working with, You know, I mean, I was part of the attraction of someone like Bob and I and myself when I went to the States was the fact that we're martial artists and, uh, you know, we get into giving the bands workouts, you know, with James Taylor. I was with James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt for 14 years, toured with ABBA. And I basically daily, you know, I'd introduce them the idea, listen, if you're interested in a bit of stretching and a bit of conditioning while you're on the road, happy to do it. And. A lot of them just jumped at that. Some didn't, but a lot did. Like with ABBA, I was training the girls just about every day we had a chance, whether in the room or on a beach or whatever, or poolside. As was even four o'clock in the morning teaching Mick Jagger karate punches. you know. No karate, 'Cause Because that's, you know, back in the 70s, of course, things are now more MMA based. But, yeah, so that was pretty cool. So, you know, Rolling Stone magazine even did an article on <laughs> me. When I went went to the States, basically, this article was, you know, me doing a sort of a flying sidekick in the air with an ironing board in the background and an iron and in the hotel room, and it was talking about how unusual it was for James or Linda and them to go on tour and actually come off tour in better shape than when they went on tour, because that was virtually unheard of. Yeah. For obviously the rigors of touring, like with James – you know, he'd set up a punching bag in the dressing room area. You know, so before he went on tra- stage, he'd got kind of to get rid of the, the the nerves, the adrenaline. You know, and again, everybody thinks that artists never get nervous after they've been doing so long, but I think everybody feels a little bit of fear about their performance. So it was a way of just settling him down and and uh, getting him ready for the stage. So. It's a multi. I guess what I'm trying to say overall is that that being a bodyguard is a multifaceted sort of job. The way I would do it, and you know, if you're on a movie set, you're usually the hairdresser or the makeup artist knows just about everything that's going on with the the actor. Yeah, because that's who you sit with in the morning. You end up chatting with, and I felt. I was a bit like that. You become a bit of a confidence somebody for them to confide in chat to and everything about whatever's going on in their life, as well as on tour. So that also became a part of the job, which was fantastic. And out of that, you often form amazing friendships. No, um, I James You're was, with
0: them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. James
1: Taylor was in Australia. I don't know how many years ago. It might be five. Who knows? But, you know, his tour manager found my wife, Judy, and I in Melbourne and flew us to Sydney just to hang out with him and his family and meet Carol King. He was on tour with Carol King. And I thought, how wonderful is that? You know, that you form these friendships. It's not just about the work. We actually just got on great. Uh, Judy and I visited Lynn Ronstadt a few years back in San Francisco and, uh, You know, I I love that aspect of the job. Uh, You know, some of the bands like Mick Jagger wouldn't know who I was from the borough soap at this stage. But (laughs) back then you form a very close association while you're on the road. And it's funny about touring. It becomes like um, it's almost like a time capsule, you know, or a rocket ship that takes off. And whoever's on that ship, as in the certain crew, the tour manager and the band, It's like a little sort of space capsule. It's very hard for anyone outside to get into that bubble, you know, become of that. And it just, it starts off and it goes to all these different states or different countries. And then it comes home and then everybody goes, basically leaves the ship and goes about their normal daily lives, you know. (laughs) So it's like a little microcosm of life while you're on, on the road. but. Look, I had a fantastic career at you know working with Fleetwood Mac for many years. Stevie Nicks when she went on her solo tours. Um, Joe Cocker was with Joe for a couple of years, which was fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's 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 been a phenomenal sort of job. And I I ended up stopping, I believe, in the early nineties just because when i and and i'm sort of rambling on here but you asked me about 79 what got me to the states yes was bodyguard work because uh linda ronstad sort of got in touch with me and wanted me to go and work for her full time in the u.s and i was a bit like oh, i don't know whether i want to do it i was very settled at home had karate schools all that sort of stuff and but she She basically said to me, look, why don't you try it? You can always go back home. And I thought, you know what? What an opportunity. I can always go back home. In fact, I told friends of mine, I'll only be gone a month or two. I don't want to live over there. And of course, you know, 38 years later, I'm still here. But that's what got me there. Now, the movie started because the year before, Bob and I had brought Chuck Norris out to Australia to do some demonstrations at some kickboxing tournaments, really the introduction of kickboxing into Australia. So Chuck came out. He was advertising one of his early movies, I think Good Guys Wear Black. I ended up doing some weapons demonstrations on the same nights, you know, in the different states uh, in Australia with Chuck. We just formed an amazing friendship right off the bat. Chuck said, if you get to California anytime, look me up. We'll do some training. So a year later, when Linda asked me to go to California off, I went and the first person I called was Chuck Norris. And I started training with Chuck every morning at his house. He lived in a place called Rolling Hills Estates, um, out past the airport. And uh, we were training every morning whilst I was working with the bands, you know, and when I wasn't on tour... And I trained with Chuck for years. And Anyway, he was in the early stages of the Octagon, one of his early kind of ninja-type movies. And because he knew I could handle weapons and everything else, he asked me if I would play his main nemesis in the movie. So that's what started my movie career. I ended up doing a few movies with Chuck and worked on Walker, Texas Ranger when it first started and, and then got a few lead roles of my own and off I went on my own little direction and... A lot of them lower-budget movies that we'd shoot in the Philippines and Thailand. And, you know, I ended up doing five movies in Hong Kong, three of them playing the lead villain against Jackie Chan.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: so, uh, yeah, so off I went. And here we are today, still in the industry 40, uh, over 40 years. And, uh, as I said, serving a slightly different role as in fight coordinating. So, hey, I feel blessed to still have a career in the industry after so long.
0: Yeah. So over the years, in all the movies that you're in, is there one that maybe it was what, maybe your first leading role or maybe it was a another movie with Chuck or with Jackie Chan? Is there a favorite experience that you had? Um,
1: you know, that's often the question I get asked. Look, yeah, probably your first lead is something you remember most because, yeah. you know, I'm playing kind of sub number four in some movies with Chuck. You know, and you're just doing what you do. And the first lead I got offered was in a film called Force Five. And uh, for martial arts out out there that are old enough, there was Joe Lewis and Benny the Jet, and Master Bong Soo Han. In other words, there was a who's who of martial arts artists vying for these roles. Well, I ended up auditioning with a hundred of probably the best martial artists in America. And I remember thinking, this is silly how what hope have i got first of all i've got what you guys would seem was a funny accent and i'm up against some absolute legend to the arts well as it turned out you know we ended up having to demonstrate everything do a bit of a reading and it ends up in i'm in the final 10 looking for the actual five leads and that was a real game changer for me because i suddenly thought instead of looking at is why me i suddenly went well why not me i've trained just as hard as anybody else I'm in the final 10 I must have the skill set needed so there's every chance that I could be the lead so I really changed my attitude I used to do a lot of visualization on outcomes that I wanted and I ended up getting one of the five leads um, as a character of all things called Ezekiel and that was my foray in so here I am on set again with people that I would consider legends in the arts and I'm sort of one of the leads, and off I went. It was also I remember realizing how much there is in acting. I mean, you talk about martial arts, you know, nobody can be a martial artist just because they say they are. It takes incredible amount of dedication and training and application of energy, and acting's the same. I mean, I'm sure there's some that can just naturally do it, but most. I think need to get into drama classes and everything else, which is what I realized I needed to do. Now, again, the people listen to that will say, Well, well, he's not that much good. You know, I, I was certainly adequate enough, but and that's a valid sort of thing because I also realized many, many years later that if I was that passionate about acting, I would have been in acting classes every night of the week. But I realized that my passion, my absolute passion was martial arts. And acting was just another way to economically solve how I could sort of spend more time in the dojo yeah. learning. So it was more a means to an end, and I would do it, and I would do the lower budget movies, and I was actually quite happy with that. And uh, as I said, and I I don't regret in any way because I've I've had I've travelled just about every country in the world, whether it's working as a personal bodyguard or or on movie sets, and like I said to you after. 40 plus years to still be in the industry starting in 79 actually i started in a bit earlier than that um here i am so my my through line has always been just to be the best martial artist i can be and again it's not sure there's some a lot better than me there's some not as good as me you know but it was about being the best martial artist i could be and with that one aim in my life, everything good that ever happened in my life has come as a result of that. The bodyguard work came from being a martial artist. The movie work started with being a martial artist. So that's, that's sort of the through line that I still have to this day. I just love being a martial artist. I love the idea that every day I wake up, I have an opportunity to learn something new in the arts due to them, the incredible Incredible evolution now with mixed martial arts. And I thought, how good is that? Because most people, I sort of, and I'm generalizing, I believe so many people in their adult lives are basically doing a job they probably hate because they have to. They do a nine to five. They go home, Mm -hmm. they watch the same TV shows that night, and then they go to bed and then they get up and do the same thing all over again. And all they're waiting to do is when they retire at six to five, is to try and actually start living. To which I would say, well, that's great if you even make it, you know, No, whereas I've just had an incredible life with, with the most, you know, sometimes you have no idea what you're going to do tomorrow, let alone next week or the month after. And that kind of spontaneity is exciting, you know, in itself. So I, yeah, it's just, it's been a good journey.
0: Yeah. So, so is it kind of mind blowing looking back that, like you mentioned, when we first started talking where you grew up, it was called the Bush. Is it kind of, like, mind-blowing where you're at now and all you've done throughout your career?
1: You know what it is when someone like you says that? (laughs) (laughs) Meaning that it's when you talk to somebody, like it might even be my sister. I have a twin sister, and Pam sort of basically has lived in Melbourne her whole life and still does and probably never might go to Sydney, and that's probably the extent of it. And when you start talking, people ask you what you do, and then you see the look on their faces when (laughs) you talk about traveling the world with some of the biggest bands in the world at that time and doing movies and working with Chuck Norris and Jackie Chan and now being on set with someone like James Gunn and Margot Robbie and Idris Silver and all this. And suddenly, you go, wow, yeah, what an incredible journey. And my message as a result of that, too, like there's a lot of martial arts. will say to me, oh, well, how do I get into the industry? You know, I want to be an action star or whatever. And I say, well... It's an incredibly difficult industry to get into. It is so competitive. There's so many people wanting to do exactly that. But I also say to them, but it just gets bad. They'll do. How badly do you want it? Because I would say, well, somebody has to play those roles. Why not you? I mean, how does a you, Jackman as an Aussie become one of the biggest stars in the world? Yeah. Well, Jackie yeah. Weaver, on and on it goes. I mean, there's plenty of examples of those few that make it. It's because they just are so um, absolutely definite in what they want to achieve and they go after it. So I say to kids, if a skinny little asthmatic kid from Croydon (laughs) will end up touring the world as a bodyguard and doing movies with Jackie Chan, Chuck Norris and whatever, then basically anybody has a chance to do it. You just have to want it badly enough. And. Yeah, I mean, it is, it, it's more, because it, see, at the time, you, it's like working with Jackie Chan, you know, I, when I went to Hong Kong, you don't go there, even though he was still so amazing, and you don't, you don't realize the impact of working with somebody like him, until often 20 years later, when you're starting to tell, like even some of the stunt guys in the set were asking me about working with Jackie, and they're just like, their jaws dropped, they're like, you're part of history. One of the few Westerners that go and actually do a number of movies with someone like Jackie Chan, who's maestro of martial arts movies, and that's when you go, well, yeah, that is special, you know that that is special. But at the time, you don't you don't realize the impact of that, if that makes sense,
0: you know. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Sometimes it's (laughs) life is about retrospect when you look at it. Like you mentioned, when you're going on tour with the bands, like you're in like a capsule. But then afterwards, when you're able to look back, that's when you really can like let it actually sink in because you're, you know, flying by the seat of your pants while you're doing, you know, even your career that's still going on and it's going to be going for a while.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, you, it's sort of sounds a bit cliche, but you, you when you're on tour, you're kind of very much in that moment. I mean, that's yeah. what the job is, what the experience is. It's and it's sort of interesting to look back and uh, I, I mean. We tend to sort of think, gee, if we only achieve this, this, and this, then we'd be the happiest people in the world and so it would matter. And I used to say, if everything stopped tomorrow, it wouldn't matter, meaning health-wise or anything, I've had the most incredible life and it, it'd it all be good. But I, it's quite some time i I realized how you feel today absolutely matters, whether mentally, physically, and everything else. And... You know, there's a gentleman named Eckhart Tolle who wrote some wonderful books on a whole new earth. And it's he's basically about being in the moment more than not. But you realize that, yes, you talk about like I am with you, all those things. But they also just become stories, but wonderful stories, you know. And you bring them up and I start mentioning, say, Aber, and my mind immediately flicks back to my times on tour with just wonderful people as they were and working them out. And then I'll hang up with you and then I'm back to, well, what am I doing today and what are we going prepare for yeah. tomorrow? It's an interesting sort of conduit where you go, well, does it all really matter what you've experienced? And, and it does. It's just, it's just a great story and it's a great experience. And one would imagine the whole purpose of being here in this earthly sort of existence is to experience experience winning experience, losing experience, hardship and, and all the rest. And, who knows what the end result of all that is? You know, that's how weird that sort of stuff gets. You know, what happens when you die and how do those experiences sort of impact whether you come back as another being or whether that's it and you end up in heaven. as a lot of people, you know, in religious circles of think, Who the heck knows? So yeah. you can only just enjoy what's happening as it's happening and enjoy it. And, and you're right. And just, but really you've just got to be so grateful and I am, you know, my wife and I are the same. We look back at what we experienced and where we've been and we go, well, how fortunate are we? And we're still fortunate. And, and to be still, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the age where goodness me, most people are long retired and I'm still working on an amazing sort of $200 million budget. We like suicide squad. And I yeah. think, well, again, how fortunate am I? So it's very important that we we do sort of realize that we have to give gratitude to the opportunities and where we're at in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I've still got my health. You know, Judy and I have been together 33 years, which is very unusual in the industry I'm in. So all of that, you just go, wow, we're just really blessed. So,
0: Yeah, no, that's true. So let's touch really quick because this has been really eye-opening. The story has been so great and so let's talk Roadhouse 2 <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> so let's, let's so, talk it <laughs> yeah so uh so how did that movie come about do you remember like that process of like the auditioning and the filming
1: you know what I I'm you know when you mention I'm I'm sort of trying to remember back uh I've got a I think that there was a guy called J.J. Perry who's a Really, really prominent second unit director, stunt coordinator, fight coordinator, and you know when I was still working kind of as a fight person, but I was doing a lot of acting. I believe it was JJ that recommended me for that role, okay, um, which I ended up getting. I I think that I don't believe it certainly wasn't from an agent saying, "Here's an audition for you," and and by the way, that's very much the case with a lot of this industry. A lot of it's about who you know who you've worked with that know what you can do and your abilities and how you are to work with. But I have a feeling it was Jay there that, that got me that role, which which was fantastic because I, of course, remember the original Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze and a friend of mine, Benny Benny Okides, who's a kickboxing legend, ended up doing the fight choreography on that movie. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so to be on that, Jonathan Sheck, of course, was the lead playing the Swayze-type character. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun on that. Because you know, and again, it was it was a great crew, and I loved Jonathan Sheck. You know, the first little fight that I did, had to do, and you know, I had to sort of attack him with some elbows and punches and everything else. And we rehearsed slowly, and then I tend to try and put as much energy as I can because I was the main bad guy in that movie. And I remember he just about wet himself, you know, because <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't be touching him, and you know, not to. That's the whole point of the fights on movies is the illusion of film but I still remember that but we, we just had a great time and you know and it's also introduced me to the whole idea of putting fights together for movie again relating to character and story and everything else so yeah it was was good it was a good cast and crew as you remember Johnston Sheck was married to Christina Applegate at the time oh that no way I didn't know that well yeah from uh married with children so it was um yeah, it was 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 a good experience. God, I can't even remember what year uh, Roadhouse.
0: It was yeah, two thousand three. Now, did he have a stunt man for your fight scenes, or was that him doing the stunts? Uh,
1: no, he did most of it. Look, most okay. yes, you, yeah, no, he did. He was very handy. Um, very handy. Look, most of the time, you know, if you're coordinating a fight, uh, an action film, you will always have a stunt double. The, the the whole desire though is that the stunt double is really just there to kind of walk through for camera and everything that the actor can do it all now of course there's, there's crashing through stuff or falls or whatever that not only should you not get the actor to do but even insurance wise you're not really allowed to do because
0: yeah.
1: if the actor gets injured then that's the end of the shoot for a while and so you always have a double Now you know it's hard for me to remember how much the actual stunt double did or not on uh, on that move because again, John Jonathan was you know good physical shape and everything else, and as I said, very able to handle a lot of the action. And here's the other thing that you know gets back to that job is, for instance, a lot of what Guy wants and I want when we train for movies, even like Suicide Squad, is our aim is to have the actor do a good eighty to ninety percent of their own action. And the reason being that, you know, a lot of films you will see without mentioning any of them will use stunt doubles and often use face replacements. So you think you're seeing the act of this really just face replacement technology that allows a double to do the whole fight. Oh, no way. The problem, Yeah, the problem for that for us is that I, and I would say, you know, when I work with Margot Robbie for the first Suicide Squad or, Scarlett Johansson for Ghost in the Shell, I was training Scarlett in New York and LA and blah, blah, blah. But I said, look, this is what we want. We want the time to spend with you so you can do majority of the action. And I would much rather pull the complexity of the fight back to enable you to be capable to do it because you're the Academy or Award winning actors. You're the one that the camera needs to stay on. The expressions and the drama within the fight are so, so important these days that we can see what you're thinking, the emotional journey that you have within a shootout or a punch up or whatever, as opposed to being on the back of a double's head. Because then it becomes too clinical for me, you know, it's almost too perfect I would rather the actor do it be a little untidy, which brings a bit of reality into it, I think from the viewer's point of view. And again, more important to be able to see their emotional journey. You know, when I, when I did action movies in the eighties, we kind of knew that you could have a bit of a story as long as you had six fight scenes, then you could sell it, you know? And it would often be drama, 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 then drama stops, then you have a fight scene, then drama continues. When ideally, the, the action is part of the drama. It's, why did it start in the first place? Where did it come from? What's the emotional content? Hence the idea of trying to have the actor actually playing that role do their own fight beats. I mean, that to me seems an obvious sort of way. And, and again, given that there's certain pieces and high falls and everything else you can't have the actor to do, as I've already mentioned. But you know, that, that's the aim.
0: No, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Especially, like you said, pull it back. Scarlet, or whoever you're working with, is the star. So you want the camera to be on them. Because if you watch, like, like you said, a lot of '80s, '90s movies, when you have like that big name star when they're in fight scenes, like you could tell it's not them. Like, right? It's pretty. It's pretty simple when they turn over and like the hair doesn't look right. So no, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, and, and you suddenly get the end of this whole action scene, there's a big sort of cut in of the actor hitting the pose. Yeah. And you go, Well, yeah, you didn't do all that. And and but it works in a lot of cases. And you know, hopefully if you do that well enough, you don't know when the actor's in there or not. But yeah. I just think, you know, and one of the one of the movies that really reminded me of all of that was the last Mad Max Fury Road with George Miller is, you know, when when George would go through, you know, there's a huge tanker fight in that movie, which was an amazingly good fight. And again, nothing nothing ridiculous as far as physical abilities, meaning there weren't any amazing backflips and triple kicks in the air because the characters wouldn't be have a licence to do that anyway. But He just would, George would go through every beat. Well, why is she using a fist? Why wouldn't it be this? And why is that person there? In other words, he just reminded all of us that every beat has to be related to character and story. It can't be there just because it looks good or it's flashy. You have to justify why that bit of action was there. And I thought, wow, that's just fantastic. Tom Hardy was very much the same with the way he would break down fight or why am i doing that not this and blah 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 and you know and and that's that's kind of what's got to go into that because look here's the deal if i you know when i get a director says oh we want something different well good luck you know the there's every move now on the man has already been done i think in one way shape or form so then it just gets down to how do you change the way it's shot how do you what does the character bring so the reason for that move, et cetera, et cetera, that's what makes it stand out, even though it's a similar move to maybe uh, that's been done in another film. And, it, it, you know, it's in the 80s and 70s, even a lot of what we did was really feet on the ground. You, a la Bruce Lee, you'd have a wide shot where you saw someone like Bruce, where the kick started, where it ended and how it ended up back on the ground, as opposed to cutting in with tight little inserts that are there to disguise The fact that the person trying it didn't really know how to throw it that well, if that makes sense. And Mad Max was very much old school, real stunts, real people doing rolling bikes, cars and everything else in real fights, you know, that you go, well, okay, I believe that character would know how to do that move and that move and that move. I mean, the best example I give is imagine watching Dirty Harry with Clint Eastwood. And having Harry suddenly jump up in the air and do a spinning heel kick. You go, well, (laughs) okay, it looks good, but how the hell would he know how to do that? He's a cop, you know? Mad Max. Max is a military guy, police background, so he's very much learned how to survive in the street. He's very, he will use whatever he can, whatever obstacle he can in order to survive as opposed to being this kind of martial arts type that bows before every match and does everything by the rules. So, that's kind of what I mean about keeping keeping true to character and story when you choreograph action.
0: No, that's a great theory. That's, no, that's good that you look at it that way because those are the best type of movies when they're not like you mentioned the way Mad Max was done. The real old school way is a really cool way, and focusing on the main actor is such a great thing that you do. So here's a question: This might this is years ago because you fought, fell in love with martial arts at the age of eleven, mm-hmm. but let's say before that. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, was there anything when you were younger that you were like, oh, you know, I want to be a veterinarian or a police officer? What, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this?
1: No, you know what? I probably would have, well, see, I'm, God, I'm, I'm 70 in January, so I would have retired anyway. But, uh, you know, my mom growing up was very much old school as far as you need security in your employment, you need to save up your superannuation or, you know, social security—they would say in America—and you know your vacation pay and everything—and it was all about job security. So when I left school, I went straight into the public service and worked in the immigration department. I was an interviewer. Oh,
0: okay. And
1: this is again—I I was already doing martial arts, but you know, when I left school, you know, in fifth year or whatever, I went straight into the immigration department. I was there for ten years. I was teaching every night you know Bob and I at the school I would take leave without pay to do bodyguard work because I retired from immigration in like 78 or just early 79 which is when I headed up to the US so even then it was I was in a real dilemma I was like very nervous about retiring or, or, or you know um sort of finishing my work with immigration because it kind of went really kept everything my mum <laughs> had drummed into me you know and I go oh god you know I, I'm not gonna have the same security and so it could very well because I've still got friends that have only recently retired from immigration that I worked with back then and I look at their lives and I look at mine i I'm, like, I'm kind of like oh my god I'm not knocking it but in comparison I go oh lord I could have been still in the public service and half and a half dead, you know, and yeah. and thank God I had that opportunity on smartness to go as per Linda. Well, yeah, let me try this. And, and I think, gee, if I hadn't taken that opportunity and dared to step out of my comfort zone and sort of step into the unknown, what, what a different life it would have been for me. You know, I, I would have still been doing martial arts, but nowhere like I'm doing now involved in the film and in the career that I have today. So that's my other little bit of advice to people it's It takes guts to step out of you know your comfort zone and dare to participate, I call it because you know there's a lot of well you' just there's no security in that. You might win and you might lose, you know, but the only thing I do know is if I hadn't taken that step and left and gone to the us and left everything I knew behind in Australia. And it wouldn't have been a quarter of the life that I have had and am still having today. Yeah. Um, you know, so, <laughs> so again, I probably would have been a public servant who knows.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> or, or just a full-time martial artist running a karate school.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah. And, uh, so thank you, Linda Ronstadt.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Selling kind of selling you like, cause she really wanted you to work for her and work with yeah. her that she said, you know what, you can always go back and you're like, Hey, you know what? And then like you said, 38, 39 years later you're still here.
1: Yeah, and that was that really was the big decider for me, you know. I said, you know what? Yes. And I, I so I just resigned, you know, from the department off I went and not knowing again what was gonna happen and opportunities came about and as I keep saying, I it for me just I just loved, I kept training every day with whoever I could train with when I got to the U S and as a result of that passion opportunities arose where I could basically use that passion to work and live and survive and have, uh, have fun with my life. And as I keep saying also, that's still the case today.
0: That's so awesome, Richard. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been an awesome hour chatting with you.
1: Yeah. My pleasure, Doug. I'm a to keep going for You can tell I love to talk, so. You're going to have to shut me up. But, you know, I, look, I, if if the least I can do is keep people a little bit of uh, inspiration to know that, as I keep saying, if I could end up having a career like this, anyone can. And who knows, maybe I could have become an A-list actor. Who knows? You know, I mean, I could have decided not to go to the Philippines and do the low-budget movies with Roger Corman and people like that and just hung out for these bigger roles, and that might have been the worst thing I could have done. Who knows? The one thing I do know is I don't regret anything I've done in that regard. Yes, I've made mistakes and lots of them and hopefully learned from them, but the experience has just been amazing, and, again, it still is. So I would just say to people, just find something you're passionate about. Find something that wants wants to make you get up every day, not just regret getting up. There was a guy called Buckminster Fuller that wrote a book called The Critical Path, and he talks about getting out of the struggle of making a living, meaning, yes, making a living, but not having to do what you hate, but actually doing what you love as a result of your passion and the universe just taking care of you, you know, often in the nick of time. So uh, it's not easy. People, well, 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 I don't know what I'm passionate about. I mean, that's that's the individual's job is to try and find something they're passionate about and uh the rest hopefully will fall in line accordingly hopefully
0: (laughs) yeah hopefully but no yeah this has been great and that's inspiring that you said that and i'm sure people Mm. that are listening right now that'll resonate with them yeah so thanks doug thanks for the opportunity
1: happy to do this again if you want to talk about any other specific movies or whatever in the future or even this one obviously i can't tell you much about this because we're not allowed to but yeah. you know the last few years there's lots of stories having done Mad Max, X-Men uh, Triple Frontier recently Ghost in the Shell there's been some great experiences and working with some phenomenal people like uh, Will Smith or Margot Robbie or Scarlett Johansson and what I always say to people they have what's that no. yeah yeah and I, I look I just didn't it, Judy's reminding me I'm talking about being a <laughs> like when I but actually did one of the leads in a drama in Australia, a crime thriller where I play a detective. I actually don't punch anyone in the whole movie. So how about that?
0: Look at that. So
1: it's a, yeah, it's a dramatic role called, it's the film's called Rage, which ironically, I already did a film called Rage, but this one's called Rage. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was shot in, uh, in Melbourne. And um, that was a tremendous experience. It's going to be released soon. Who knows where and what and how, but, we're, we're still doing what we're doing so there That's you go awesome I'll keep
0: an eye out for that that looks pretty cool yeah thank you Doug awesome well have a great day
1: alright you too thank you my friend
0: there you have it that was the great Richard Norton and thank you Linda Rodstadt for you know just convincing him to come over here saying hey you know what you can go back if you don't like it she knew that he would love it <laughs> so now your job is to go watch Roadhouse 2 you can find it anywhere Then listen to us discuss it next week. And it's got a pretty good cast. And, of course, you got Richard Norton as the bad guy. And you got to subscribe so you don't miss out. Review, rate, tell your friends about us. And, oh, yeah, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sequelsonly. Good night.